Welcome back to the Warehouse Podcast, everyone. I am not Tyler. I'm Eli. And I'm Jesse. And as you can tell from the shorter list of introductions there, Tyler is not with us this week. Uh, Unfortunately, he has some scheduling conflicts and we, you know, we just thought we needed to get something out. We needed to provide for you guys. Uh, I feel like we owe that to you. And so you've got the Brothers Ginsburg here talking about some Orioles baseball. Jess, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Before we get into the Orioles specifically, though, I did just want to ask you, as a pitcher, how did you feel about Clayton Kershaw being taken out of a perfect game after seven uh, innings pitched? So I have a couple thoughts here. A, Kershaw himself did not seem to have a problem with it. And so that indicates to me that he genuinely was getting fatigued and et cetera, et cetera. And all the excuses that they made up for taking him out might've been valid. B, I'm on the fan side of it. And I say, there've been a lot of World Series one in MLB history, like more than a hundred because there's one every year. There have been 23 perfect games and we're in a situation where because of the rarity of a perfect game and it's only going to get more rare as pitchers less and less frequently are throwing complete games. I I think it's a situation where you have to just protect every opportunity to throw a perfect game. And I want them to go forward at all times and quite frankly like you know Clayton Kershaw is a major league pitcher he can throw 100 pitches I understand being you know conservative with things but quite frankly you know he's at 80 pitches through seven innings if he throws another 25 30 pitches to get the last two innings like that's not going to have an impact on his duration throughout the course of the season you throw yeah. him only five innings next time, whatever, you know. I mean, that's basically my point on it is that, right, like, I mean, Clayton Kershaw throws thousands of pitches in a in a single season. And uh, in the grand scheme of things, how much are these 30 really going to affect him? Um, let alone if he gives up a hit in the eighth inning on the first batter, you pull him immediately. And then the whole situation is averted and, you know, uh, Roberts isn't the bad guy for pulling him out of the game, right? Like the whole the whole situation just goes away. But yeah, if he does throw the perfect game, like just give him an extra day's rest, you know, figure out like bullpen that one game he would have pitched or something. Give him an extra day's rest, something, you know, like f- figure it out. But yeah, 30 extra pitches preventing uh like the possibility of a perfect game to spare a pitcher, especially of Kershaw's, um, you know, caliber and at the point in his career that he's in, et cetera, you know, he can handle an extra 30 pitches. That's my, you know, how I feel about it. And yeah, it's, it, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's really frustrating. And I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like Roberts is one of the like managers that, will sometimes overthink a situation and he'll he'll he's I think he's generally like a a more conservative manager so I'm not surprised that you know he was the guy that ended up pulling 
Kershaw out in that situation. But yeah, go ahead. Something really cool about that. So only twice in MLB history has a manager pulled a pitcher from a perfect game through seven innings and less than 80 pitches or 80 pitches or less because Kershaw had 80. And another Both was times, Dave Roberts. <laughs> it was Dave Roberts, right? And he he pulled Rich Hill in 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. it's wild. That's, I mean, yeah, that says something. I think that says a I lot about. I, I mean, I like him as a manager. Like, I think he's obviously doing great things with the Dodgers, but that doesn't but, mean I can't disagree with him. Right, but right. Brandon Hyde would never. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm actually not convinced of that. The Orioles will never find themselves in a position where a pitcher is throwing a perfect game through seven. Hey, at least uh, not this year. I'm sorry, not this yeah, year. Right, not this year. Um, but didn't I think Hyde actually didn't he pull someone from like a no hitter through six or something? What am I thinking of? I thought you were actually referencing something. I yeah. I am not remembering what it is exactly, but we'll have to like look up. Maybe we can like edit this or something. But um, yeah, I, I'm like pretty sure that I don't know. Maybe it was someone like Watkins. Oh my god, thumb. was it Watkins? April first, twenty nineteen. Orioles manager explains why he pulled pitcher David Hess from a no hitter. David Hess, right? Okay. Yep. Hyde pulled David Hess during the seventh inning against the Toronto Blue Jays, even though the pitcher had a no-hitter going. Brandon right. Hyde's quote, I let him go as far as I could let him go. It's the right thing long-term, obviously, for his health and the ball club, for everything. It's a six-month season to extend him way past where he should finish, in my opinion, wasn't smart. So, I, you know, it was interesting because when you were when you made that comment, I thought you were referencing that uh, moment. I was, I was like, okay, yeah. yeah so. I take it back. Brandon Hyde would. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah. And, and like, come on. I mean, they're talking about David Hess's like, I mean, David Hess, like, yeah, he's, uh, that was like, I guess his moment where he might've had some Orioles glory, <laughs> you know? And yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, all right, I guess let's, uh, let's, uh, yeah, and anyway. then, and, and then of course the other, the other, just ridiculous thing was like Vlad Guerrero hitting three home runs and like yeah. pulling a 98 mile an hour fast and stepped on right and like pulling a 98 mile an hour fastball like off the inside corner you know over the fence and turning on it like it was you know a high schooler throwing you know a 75 mile an hour pitch or something right yeah I saw something that was the hardest and most inside pitch to ever be hit out for a home run in the stack cast era of course yeah just yeah it was like 98 miles an hour and like four and a half inches off the inside corner or something like that just yeah unbelievable yeah i mean we have him to look forward to for the next five years in toronto (laughs) right exactly exactly so yeah we had we had our manny machado you know while it happened and I think we're about to have an Adley, you know, so we'll we'll have our glory soon enough, hopefully. But right now it's it's not Vladdy Guerrero and it's not on the major league roster. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. So our our Baltimore Orioles should say we're recording this on April 15th on Thursday. No, it's it's gosh, I'm crazy. April 15th is Friday. Um, 
and we are recording this before the start of the Orioles game tonight against the Yankees, uh, but we will probably be releasing it on Monday, so we are giving the most updated information that we have, of course. Uh, so currently the Orioles are one in five. We got swept in Tampa Bay and then proceeded to take the home opener against Milwaukee and then proceeded to win nothing else. So I don't know, Jess, how are you feeling so far? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a surprising start. Uh, I mean, the Orioles were somewhat unfortunate to come right out of the gate playing like two very, very good teams. Um, so, I mean, if I, you know, we didn't make predictions, but if we had made predictions, I think I would have probably guessed somewhere right around one in five at this point this season, uh, having looked at our schedule. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, hopefully, you know, and as you mentioned, it doesn't get any easier because tonight we play the Yankees, which, um, you know, will also be a tough matchup for us, even though we will be home. So that's something. But um, I mean, we were home against Milwaukee, of course. But um, yeah, so no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just kind of there have been the one thing I will say, though, about uh, the start of the season so far is that even though the club has done poorly overall as a club, there have been some bright spots uh, that have warranted some excitement. So um, that is that is exciting. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm really in the same spot. I, I think, you know, obviously we played two good teams. I do not think there's any reason to start sounding alarm bells. We knew the Orioles were going to be bad, and we knew that the Rays and the Brewers were going to be pretty good. Um, I guess one thing that folks have been queuing in on is just kind of in general, the offense has been struggling a bit. We're averaging like two runs a game everybody and their mother is queuing in on the runners in scoring position issue. The Orioles are six for 55 as it stands right now with runners in scoring position. Good for a zero nine one average. And that is worse than the majors. Um, tr shortly behind us are the Miami Marlins and the Arizona. Yeah. Arizona diamondbacks at one Oh eight. Um, so we're the only team hitting less than 100 with runners in scoring position. Is that like, I don't know. Are you worried about that? Um, not, not exactly. I think uh, the number is reflective. One of the good pitching staffs uh, by Milwaukee and by uh, Tampa. Um, but I, th I think the bigger problem that it reflects is uh, the inability of the Orioles to hit situationally. Um and I think that's kind of the big problem uh, that it, it, yeah. And I think it's going to continue to be a problem throughout the rest of the year. Obviously, I think the Orioles will hit better than um, that average. But uh, I mean, teams that uh, I, most of the time, right? Like the average with runners in scoring position should not be worse than just your regular betting average like generally there shouldn't be a big reason for that so um you know obviously it'll moderate out a bit as the season continues and it won't be a big problem but uh the teams that 
do better and hit better with runners in scoring position. One are not teams that are pressing, not hitters that are pressing at the plate. And two, uh, that know how to hit situationally and know how to, uh, you know, take advantage of runners being held on base, you know, uh, at look for pitches in certain zones, right. To be able to hit the ball the other way or to be able to find a hole, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, the Orioles just generally as a team don't do that. Um, but we knew we weren't going to do that. I mean, if you look at our lineup and roster construction, you know, we have guys that are generally like dead pull hitters. I mean, not the whole lineup one through nine, but you know, especially at the heart of the order, um, these are guys that are not, they're built mainly for power and they're not, you know, great situational hitters. So, um, I kind of, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if to some extent the Orioles struggle with runners in scoring position, um, through the rest of the year, but obviously, um, or if the Orioles don't capitalize on a bunch of opportunities, um, you know, the strikeouts is also of course a giant factor, um, going into this that the Orioles are going to strike out a lot this year. So, um, yeah, I mean, am I concerned? I mean, it's kind of a problem that I knew and thought the Orioles would have. Um, obviously it's not going to be this bad the entire season, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, concerned, I mean, it's just, you know, what I expected to be. So, yeah, I'm with the on all fronts there. Uh, I will follow up on the strikeouts thing the Orioles do have 28 strikeouts out of these 55 at-bats, which if you're doing the math at home is more than half of these at-bats we are striking out. So it's not great, but like Jesse said, you know, this is not, you know, this isn't a whole team of like JD Martinez and Joey Votto, like just veteran veteran hitters that go up there knowing what they're looking for in every situation. Uh, It's a, you know, young, relatively inexperienced group of, you know, offensive core. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily agree on like pull hitter because we definitely, I mean, Mancini is kind of a right center field gap kind of guy. Santander can go the other way at times. So we can spray it a little bit in the heart of the order, but I think that the larger thing to me is, as you said, I mean, the Rays and the Brewers, are two of the most elite pitching staffs in the game. And, you know, everyone queued in on uh, the game that we lost by a run to the Brewers. You know, we had a leadoff double by Odor, I think it was. And then Devin Williams sits down three guys in a row. And it's like, well, that is what Devin Williams does. You know, he throws a changeup with 3,000 RPMs. Like, you know, Pitching Ninja calls it the airbender. You know, he's got ridiculous, incredibly gross stuff. And then Josh Hader comes in and does the same thing in the ninth. It's a situation where, A, these are not guys that the Orioles ever see. And so there's much less scouting information because there's been, you know, quite frankly, like less time interacting with these players. Um, You get somebody on... And then Corbin Burns is throwing his 96 mile an hour cutter. And it's like, well, yeah, he won the Cy Young award last year and the Rays of the Rays. So I look at this and yes, it's been 
a struggle. I'm not arguing that. But regardless of that, I don't think there's necessarily anything to be too caught up in. Runners in scoring position and kind of overall, like the quote unquote clutch factor has sort of been something that's going away as we spend more time crunching numbers in baseball these days. There are um, a lot of arguments to be made that clutch is sort of a figmentation of people's imagination. Um, You know, your lineup is just constructed such that you get people on base for your best hitter and your best hitter will convert more often than not. Um, So, you know, there, there are all these semantics in the argument, but regardless of that, we do have some positives to cue in on. Um, the two we wrote down, Mountcastle and Santander, I think Santander is the more interesting case. Everyone kind of expected Mountcastle to be here and be performing. So, Jess, what are you seeing from Anthony Santander here? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously the patience is what stands out, right? Um, I mean, historically, he's been more or less a free swinger. So, you know, the plate discipline is just so exciting to see. And it's really I think the plate discipline is really, you know, the last step he needs to sort of transform as a hitter. Right. We know he has a pat. Go ahead. He needs needs health. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Well, of course. Right. Um, But in terms of actually being a hitter. Right. Right. he needs to he needs to uh really like how he can elevate his game is being more selective you know knowing what pitches he's looking for um you know and and waiting for pitches that he can hit because we know he has power um we know uh in in terms of actually hitting you know we know he has a lot of uh skill and a lot of um uh ability right um so yeah, I mean him him coming into his own, him uh finding plate discipline and being selective uh and having just an overall better approach at the plate um is really I think how he can go from being a, a solid hitter to being a really like a, a great hitter, right? Um and I think I definitely think he has that in him to really be a great hitter. Um so yeah, I, the plate discipline is obviously the big thing that stands out. Um, that's, of course, you know, been reflected in his walks this year, um, which he's been accruing steadily. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's been good. And I think also overall, um, you know, it's nice he's been hitting third in the order. Um, so he has some protection behind him. In the past, a lot of times he's hit fifth. And, you know, I don't want to look too much into that, but, um, you know, the added protection behind him might also be playing a role. So, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, the thing that I want to that I want to mention is, you know, in 2020, we saw an Anthony Santander that, you know, had a 575 slugging. And granted, this was the shortened season and he only made it through. It was something like 35 games of that or whatever before he got hurt but we saw a version of Anthony Santander that really had a pretty elite batted ball profile he was hitting the ball hard I saw his max exit velo that year was 113 you know he's he really does have a lot of potential as a complete overall hitter and the ability to switch hit makes him a pretty potent weapon in the center of a lineup 
I really, really, you know, like everybody has called for Santander trades over the last few years. I've, I still, I am a believer in him. And I think that if we can just keep him healthy this year, that he really could turn into something pretty valuable, whether it be as a trade ship or, you know, as a piece moving forward. There's a reason that this guy was picked up by the Orioles. You know, we picked him up as a rule five pick and he had never played above like high A. He had never even played double A ball. And we just stashed him because he was hurt. And we knew we could like force him through a year with some IL stints. And then we could get him the development he needed. That's because the Orioles saw, you know, from the time that he was super, super young, that this was a special talent. And I'm still a believer in Anthony Santander. I, I think, um, you know, the defense is not great. <laughs> and it will continue to not be that. But he did lose a bunch of weight this year. and. I, I, I just I mentioned the defense because I'm not saying I expect him to get faster or anything, but my hope is that having lost 20, 25 pounds or so, like Jim Palmer said he did, that that will help him stay a little bit leaner, help him really like, I don't know, focus on his health this year, stay a bit more flexible, and hopefully just have a little less strain as he moves around the field. Um, I'm very hopeful for Santander. I think that, as you said, Jess, the plate discipline is really a game changer for him as well. I think being able to draw walks is, it, well, so I guess I can say this. In that 2020 season when he had the 575 slugging, his OBP was right around league average at like 315. So, you know, it's really like never been a part of his game. As a matter of fact, that 315 OBP, was the highest of his career. And right now his OBP is 609. So he's clearly turned a huge corner through these first six games. <laughs> Not just joking. Um, okay, so let's move on here. Uh, I wanted to cue in on the bullpen. I have loved every second of this bullpen. And that's a good thing and a bad thing because there have been too many seconds of the bullpen. We'll get to the starting pitching later, but we're seeing a lot of innings out of the pen and really we're seeing a lot of success out of the pen. Um, there've been some good things. I'm going to get the bad out of the way. First, we have seen Jorge Lopez struggle in a couple outings. Now he is showing the like 99 with sync that, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, if you just convert him to a bullpen guy, this is what can happen. He is showing that. And he has this four pitch mix that really is like so tantalizing as a potential short inning, you know, relief option. Tell me what you're seeing from him, Jess. Do you think that he stays in that ninth inning role that we've seen him in? Do we think that he gets booted within the next week? What are you seeing on his like long-term outlook? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I think the thing with him, uh, he seems to me a little too volatile to hold down the ninth inning role for an extended period of time. So I could see him even holding it for a month or two, but I would be, I mean, I'd be really surprised, but I'd be ecstatic if he held it down the whole year. Right. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think uh, mechanically that he's going to run into issues. He's going to lose his command. And then I think Lopez is also one of the guys that kind of gets in his head too much. Right. 
this is something that kind of always uh, kind of I feel like has followed him around right um, like as a starting pitcher as a relief pitcher right I mean we had the thing with him where you know he'd pitch four spectacular innings and then come out for the fifth and just totally unravel and fall apart right so I think that like being the closer having the closer role is just a whole bunch of added pressure onto that when you know he's just expected to be the guy to shut it down to be locked down and honestly he doesn't really have the command for that right he doesn't have the the um you know he's going to walk his share of guys right um so i yeah i mean having him hold down the closer role for an ex- extended period of time uh i think that would kind of like rely on him emerging into a new pitcher we haven't really seen yet um but uh yeah so but i i definitely think you know i i don't want to be uh too pessimistic on him i still do think that we can find a role for him not only on the Orioles, but, you know, in the bullpen. Um, I don't, I don't think he's a guy that the Orioles have to part ways with immediately or anything like that. Right. Um, just having him hold, you know, be the closer, um, for an extended period of time. You know, I don't see that happening. Yeah. I'm right with you. Are, are you still, I, we had both mentioned, uh, being on the Dylan Tate train as, you know, potential like team leader and saves by the end of this year. Are you still kind of on that train? Yeah, I, I definitely like him a lot. Uh, uh, and I like him a lot as uh, the next in line to take over the closer role. Of course, uh, it is tempting to just say that we should uh, give Felix Bautista a try back there, which I guess we'll talk about. But, you know, I mean, this is his first time in the major leagues, right? So, like, even adding that pressure onto him probably doesn't make sense, even though it would be really uh, fun to experiment with. Uh, so, yeah. So, so, all right, bef- hold on. before we get to Bautista, we're yeah, going right, to talk right. about him. Don't you worry. Okay. But, yeah, uh, we so, could talk about Tate. Yeah. Well, I, I don't even need to talk about Tate in particular. Okay. The thing I want to ask is just how do you feel – regarding whether the Orioles do establish a true closer this year. Do you I mean, think that, that's something we even really look to do? Do you think it's a coincidence that Lopez has gotten two opportunities? Or are uh, yeah, we going right. by committee eventually? Well, no, I mean, I, I think I, I, I don't, I feel like it was Brandon Hyde's plan to try Lopez out in the role and to see what happens. Right. Um, I, I don't think that he necessarily felt like this is, he wanted this to work out all year, but I thought his early, uh, his early thinking on the matter was, you know, we're going to let Lopez try this out and see how this works. I think also part of that is that they know that he has so much potential. So I feel like in their minds, they were thinking, okay, well, this is how we can maximize, right. His, uh, his value, right. If we can show that he's able to be an effective closer, you know, this is really how we can turn his current value into a lot of value. Right. Um, So I think that's kind of where the thinking was at with that. Um, But yeah. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, Just to like run over a couple pitch metrics here with Lopez. I mean, what the Orioles are seeing his 
so if you look at like his vertical and horizontal movement on baseball savant for this year, there is no blue on any movement anywhere, which means he has average or above average movement in all directions on all of his pitches, which is a very, very rare thing. And, you know, whether that will totally keep up throughout the course of the year, obviously there are fluctuations in your stuff as the year goes on, but you know, he's throwing this sinker at 98 miles an hour. It's moving over two inches further horizontally than the average pitch at that speed. He's throwing a curveball that drops six more inches and has two more inches of horizontal movement than the average curveball. I mean, he definitely like has these tantalizing, tantalizing pitches. And I agree, I think this was Hyde's plan to work him into that role and see if it would translate. Um, I, I, yeah, I personally am on the side of, I don't think the Orioles even tried to establish a closer this year. I think it will be entirely by committee, by situation, but similar to the way he was working Solcer in, in early 2020, I think this was a means of trying to figure out, will this guy be effective here? Whether it's to, like maximize his value or to just keep maximum flexibility in the bullpen, you know, understanding that the quote unquote by committee closer is, you know, inclusive of everyone in your bullpen. You know, you're just trying to figure out who will fit there as you move along. Um, yeah, I, I definitely like you, you look and he's like in the 11th percentile for walk per or, 26th percentile for walk percentage is in the 11th percentile for hard hit percentage is the other thing I wanted to throw out there. Um, he definitely is not getting squared up and this is self-inflicted damage, um, which he needs to get corrected. I get, you know, the high octane arm coming in, throwing 99 is what everyone talks about as a reliever, but uh, yeah, he needs to settle it down a little bit and kind of figure out how he can find a balance between you know, being a pitchability and command guy versus the high octane arm that he is trying to turn into in the bullpen. Um, right. Okay. And just, just to what you're saying, I do think, I do agree that it's unlikely the Orioles find a closer uh, that is just going to be permanent. Right. I mean, I think Tate would really, I mean, I know there was some discussion about Crable doing it and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a couple opportunities but um yeah i mean as far as like with you know with tate right i mean this is a kind of another guy where you know he runs into command issues from time to time and right like i think i think lopez and tate kind of are guys you end up putting back there you know when things are going well for them and when you know they're pitching well but then when things fall apart it's not going to make sense in my mind, at least to keep running them out there and be like, okay, well, they had a bad day yesterday, but you know, they're going to have a short memory and they're just going to have it put together today. You know, it's like neither of those pitchers seem like that they have that sort of mentality. So um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's going to be predominantly a closer by committee thing uh, with mainly Crable and uh, Lopez and uh, Tate getting the the bulk of of the opportunities, and you know maybe Bautista you know gets a few of them too. But um, really, see Crable. 
I'm not sure I'm fully yeah. on the hype train with him. I think he's mm-hmm. a middle relief guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but you brought I, his name up again. I, I was just going to... Um, the, the thing is, like, about Crable, I mean, right, he is, like, a middle relief guy. But I also think, like, Sulcer is a middle relief guy, right? And I feel like the Orioles and Brandon Hyde are at this sort of, like, experimentation phase where they are really just going to be willing to just you know, try a bunch of different guys and see what happens. Right. So I, so I, I would not be surprised if even these guys we think of as middle relief guys end up coming in the ninth inning, you know, when we're ahead. So. Well, yeah. So I, I guess I'll say Crable, like, I, I don't anticipate that there's never a situation where he does like where he gets mm-hmm. in the ninth inning, mm-hmm. but, what on earth makes you say Sulcer is not a ninth inning guy? I mean, we tried it out and it didn't work. Um, so well, it didn't really work in 2020, but he was right. in every high leverage situation last year. No, no, yeah, I get that. I mean, but I mean, he's not how he's not no- normally a guy that you would conceptualize as like closer material. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't throw 97, 98, right? He um i mean he throws strikes he pounds the strike zone which is important um but i don't i don't don't think if you take the you know the best 30 closers in baseball like i don't think he and if you put salsa in there an entire year or whatever like i don't i don't think he makes the cut Hmm. but I don't know. I I mean, like, he's got the high spin rate fastball that plays at the top of the zone. He does throw 94-95. He's Mm. got the splitter, and he's got a little slider that he mixes in. Yeah. I I, I see him in high-leverage situations, Mm. and I think the Orioles proved that with him last year. But Mm. we got to get to the thing that everybody wants to talk about, Jess. Yeah, me included. Yeah, this is the reason really like it's the entire reason for doing this podcast yeah and that is felix bautista yeah so currently so i i was really sad that i looked this up and he's now number two in the stuff plus metric but Mm. uh for those who don't know stuff plus is a means of quantifying just velocity like your release point in terms of arm angle and actually extension how far down the mound you're getting um your vertical and horizontal movement and it's a means of quantifying all of that and normalizing it to 100. so felix bautista is second in the major leagues with a 161 stuff plus rating uh that means it is his stuff at a very like raw numeric level is 61% better than league average. And this is of every other pitcher, you know, you're going down the line and, you know, a Chapman is number 10, 20% worse, you know, Hunter green throwing one Oh two is down there. Shohei Otani is down there. Everybody else on earth is worse than Felix Bautista. And that is except one guy. We're not going to talk about him. That's all I have to say. Jess, how exciting has this guy been? I mean, he's beyond exciting, right? Um, I mean, it's kind of shocking that the Orioles had him in the system, right? I mean, it's a question whether he would have even been on the major league roster this year uh, had he not basically had to have been uh, added to the 40-man roster uh, to avoid 
uh, being taken in a hypothetical rule five draft. So, um, I mean, it's pretty amazing that, uh, yeah, I mean, I I've always been kind of surprised that he has not gotten more attention, uh, from the, from the minors, uh, being in the minors, he's gotten some, but, um, yeah, I mean, as we can see, as he's showing, I mean, he throws really hard. Um, he throws downhill and he has great, uh, you know, he has a couple, uh, you know, the slider is just looks ridiculous, you know, and the movement is just, you know, spectacular. So, um, I mean, I really feel, uh, confident that if he gets put in the right situations, uh, that he, I, I think already, like he is a guy that can put up good numbers this year. Right. I don't think he's going to need, you know, a while to develop or, um, at the major league level, I think like he's going to come in and he's going to have an immediate impact for the Orioles. Yeah. So a couple of things, uh, to throw out here, it, he definitely did kind of pop onto the scene last year. You know, he moved through three levels of the minor leagues. Right. And, you know, I, I don't want to say he surprised everybody, but definitely just caught everyone off guard. Right. Um, and yeah really like what makes this guy so elite i guess he's listed <laughs> he's listed on baseball savant at 65 190 that's just you know outright not true people are calling him 67 280 290 um i mean this is a big guy and coming down the mound he's got a fairly high release point and even beyond that he just excels in vertical movement everywhere he looks, you know, like you look at his four seamer, he's averaging 97 and a half miles an hour. And it's got almost three more inches of rise on it than the average fastball. His, they call it a changeup on here. He throws a splitter, but it's dropping almost five and a half or dropping more than five and a half inches more than the average. The sliders dropping six and a half inches more than average. I mean, he works up and down. And as somebody who is so unbelievably tall, that is really, really effective. You get pitches that, you know, you're releasing from, like, as tall as he is, you're releasing the ball seven feet off the ground or so. And people have to track that and, you know, watch it staying up, up at your eye level at 100 miles an hour or diving down below your knees. I, I mean, it's really, really an effective mix and good. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, movement is great. Right. But when movement is complemented by velocity, right. Then, right. I mean, that is just a match that is so overpowering for a hitter. Um, yeah. I mean, the diff trying to distinguish between, you know, the 89 mile an hour splitter or the 99 mile an hour fastball. I mean, that's a near impossible task for a hitter. Yeah, go ahead. Didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, you're fine. Yeah. And so the other thing that I'll throw out here, um, it, it's just kind of an interesting note. He really like in terms of horizontal movement is below average on all three of his pitches, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, but you know, when Jesse talks about like movement being coupled with velocity, I should throw out for those who aren't like familiar with baseball savant and the stack cast and all the like information pages. Um, 
these numbers that I'm throwing out in terms of versus average, you know, like horizontal movement versus average, vertical movement versus average, those are all relative to pitches at a comparable at a comparable velocity and extension, I believe are the two. Um, so, you know, it's two inch, it, like the fastball is rising two, three inches more than other fastballs around 97 miles an hour, you know, getting released six feet in front of home plate or in front of the rubber. But one other thing I will throw out uh, that's kind of interesting about Bautista. So nowadays there's a concept of active spin. Uh, you, you know, you're using your hand to impart some kind of spin on the ball, but then there's a quantification of actually how much spin that you put on it is contributing to movement, is contributing to the action that you're putting on it. Um, and Felix Bautista's four-seam fastball has 100% active spin. <laughs> so, you know, everything that he puts into that is really, really contributing to the rise on that fastball. And that's really why you see it being so, so effective. Um, yeah, I, you know, obviously he's going to be wild. He has given up some hits, quite frankly, like, uh, he's given up some hard hits. <laughs> he's only in like, I don't know, in the 12th percentile and average exit velocity, 14th percentile and hard hit percentage. He's definitely getting hit a little bit, but as this gets refined, as the year goes on, I, I think we have a lot of good things to look forward to with Felix. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, and I think that, right, he's going to have to learn how to pitch in the major leagues, right? In the minors, he could probably just, you know, he could blow guys away with that fastball, right? But now, you know, the hitters uh, are obviously a lot better and he's going to have to figure out how to get these guys out, you know, with, you know, in addition, uh, you know, all the hitters have the advanced scouting and all this stuff minor leaguers don't. Uh, get to take full advantage of so yeah definitely uh one other person worth noting is big mike bauman uh has come in had a couple effective outings some extended outings too some multi-inning uh jess what are you seeing out of him i mean basically just everything that you know we're excited about with him he's throwing strikes he throws hard he has movement um yeah i mean he's coming uh into relief roles and he's really really done a good job so um he's a he's attacked hitters which uh i know that's something that brendan hyde emphasizes a lot like he wants mainly he wants relievers to come in and throw strikes i mean sounds very cliche or whatever but um, but yeah, I mean, so far he's come in, he's attacked the strike zone and he's gotten outs. Uh, I don't think he's given up a run this year yet. So it's not yet. Right. So, um, no, he's, he's looked very good. So, and, and also the velocity is like where we would expect it to be. So it seems like he's already kind of, uh, you know, he does, he doesn't have to shake, off, uh, he doesn't have to shake off any rust from like the off season or anything like that. Like he seems like he's uh, prepared and uh, he's maybe not at mid season form, but you know, he's definitely pitching well. So. Yeah. So to cue in on him throwing hard. Uh, yeah. Averaged 93.6 last year on the fastball now averaging 96.9. So definitely coming out of the gate, throwing hard. Uh, one note I wanted to make was he like very similarly to Bautista 
uh, just excels with vertical movement and basically does nothing in terms of horizontal. <laughs> um, but his, yeah, his four seam fastball, more than two, like uh, two inches of hop beyond average. The curveball is dropping almost nine inches more. He does have that big hammer that we've talked about. Um, I, I definitely am excited to see what Bauman does. And I, I don't know. The, the interesting part here is whether we leave this as is, as a multi-inning weapon, or whether he gets some starts throughout the year. I, I don't know. How are you feeling about that, Jess? I'm definitely on the pro, give him a shot to start. You yeah. are? Okay. Yeah, because, right. I mean, first of all, we need it, right? As we're going to like mention again, we desperately need it. And yeah, I mean, let's try it out. I mean, we can, you know, once he gets stretched out, you know, to the point where he you know, is able to throw out, which he might be right now, right? Um, at least a four-inning start or a five-inning start, right? Which is basically the Orioles' threshold for a start. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, once he's in a position to be able to do that, then, yeah, let's try it out, and we can always move him to the bullpen if it doesn't work, right? But, yeah, let's give him a few spot starts. Let's see how he does. You know, he has the pitch mix to be able to to be a starter, um, I, I really don't see any reason why Bauman can't start. So I don't know why we're kind of restricting him to this multi-inning, you know, bullpen piece. Right. So. Yeah. I, the only thing that I could say is, you know, we definitely need multi-inning, multi-inning <laughs> bullpen pieces this year. <laughs> um, I, I, I do think I land on the same side, you know, in the long run, you try to make somebody a starter until it can't work. It's what we're doing with Tyler Wells right now. You know, it's what we've done with all 30 quadruple A guys that have been cycling in throughout the last year and a half. We're trying to keep them as starters and dropping them in the bullpen if needed. Right. And, and it's, it's not about this year, right? We want to see Absolutely. whether this guy can be a major league starter. So let's find out, right. Even if we don't have the nice, you know, bullpen piece coming out, you know, but even, you know, from an argument of like this year, like our starting pitching is so thin that right. Like it, it might even make sense for this year you know, to have them be a starter if we're trying to, like, get the most wins this year, right? It might make sense to sacrifice the multi-inning bullpen uh, piece that he is to have him start, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I guess we'll keep walking down that path. Starting pitching is a problem, Jesse. Yeah. We, uh, it's like, you know, did anybody see this coming? <laughs> right even <laughs> even even though the orioles took our advice or mainly your advice and signed jordan lyles in the off season he was not a uh a savior uh that just completely fixed the starting rotation yeah uh jordan lyles first start was not good no. um that said i still think there will be better times ahead yeah um but so for where we are right now, I just I cannot get over this. The Orioles called somebody up for a spot start for the fifth game of the season, Jesse. Which is not even one round through the rotation. Right. Yeah. It, it is a blatant admission that there is no plan for the fifth spot in the rotation. 
We are just going to wing it every five days. Thank goodness we have an extra two roster spots right now. What What's crazy about this is, like, before the season, uh, you know, I was contemplating, oh, maybe the Orioles are going to do a six-man rotation. I, I feel like this is a possibility. I don't think any of us envisioned a four-man rotation. Yeah. Right. It, it's a bold take. You know, yeah. the Orioles are looking for innovative tactics at all fronts, and the four-man rotation is clearly the latest iteration. <laughs> I, I mean, it's... It's insane. It, it's remarkable, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so DJ Stewart gets sent down. I'm not sure that's actually all that worth talking about. Um, I I have said on this podcast before that I do not really envision DJ Stewart having a place on this team in the future. Um, right. But, so DJ Stewart gets sent down. Spencer Watkins and Alexander Wells get called up. Watkins gets the start. Does not do that great. Bullpen comes in, shuts it down from there forward. But it's too little too late. Um, I don't know. I guess, what are you looking at and seeing, like, the Orioles' overarching plan being here? with this fifth spot is this going to happen every five days are we hopefully looking to get some of the bullpen arms that we've been talking about stretched out maybe a bomb in you know like i, I how, how are you seeing this un- unfolding or is spencer watkins going to come get shelled every fifth day it it is a little unclear i mean i wouldn't be surprised if watkins does uh you know make a few starts here um at least in the short term uh I mean, I definitely think that uh, Ballman, I think Bradish is definitely a guy that is waiting in the wings, right? I think everybody is talking about that. Um, like, uh, so I think, you know, in a month or two, we're going to see Bradish uh, get some of the starts, right? Um, if it, I, I think he's just going to be the five starter, right? Um, most likely. So, um but yeah, I think in the meantime, right, we're going to have, uh, I think it might be Watkins. I think uh, Wells might get a couple starts. Um, and I think also, uh, um, yeah, and, and Ballman, of course, I think is also a contender, right? I, I would like to see Ballman get some starts, right? So, um, I, I mean, I think the one thing that does complicate this a little bit is, um the new rule about the, uh, the, the pitchers only being able to be optioned five times in a year now. Right. Uh, I mean, that's all players, but you know, we're talking about the pitchers, right? So <laughs> that actually, I think does come into play with the Orioles and it does make it a, a little harder because the Orioles can't just, you know, uh, pull a guy up uh, for a spot start and then immediately option him, you know, without thinking twice about it. Right. Um, there are some considerations that, you know, some more long-term considerations that need to be accounted for when making a decision like that. Um, I mean, how many, are you really, how many times are you going to pull somebody up and then immediately send them back down when you can only do that five times, right? Right. And, And you're not even getting two starts out of them. You're just literally surviving the one day, right? So, um... Yeah, I mean, the or I mean, we were saying this, you know, I mean, Jordan Lyles in the offseason, in my mind, was not enough. I think the Orioles needed to go sign another pitcher. Um, 
that I, and I, I get your concern about ending up blocking guys and stuff like that. Um, I, I know you wanted some flexibility in the rotation, but I think one more starter uh, would have been okay. Um, and, but here we are and uh, you know, already we're having problems. So. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, I'm glad you brought up the five option limit this year because I actually wanted to mention the same thing as to why Spencer Watkins was the guy who got this start. And I think that, well, I guess for, for me, I think that the overarching plan here is yes, I think Bradish comes up and I think we give him a full, you know, one or two month trial in the starting rotation. I think he just has the spot. I think he will be the guy and we will just leave him there. Um, And I think the Orioles are just trying to get through the first month. I don't know, really. It's kind of an interesting thing. I don't know if they're playing service time games with a guy who's projected to be a number four or five starter in Bradish, you know, like, you know, he's a top 10 prospect for us. He's great. I'm not trying to diss the guy at all but it's just not usually the level that you see service time manipulation at. So it was interesting to me. Um, I'm not sure if the Orioles are playing those games or if there's genuinely something that they want to work on with him for a month or two. That said, I think that they're giving Spencer Watkins this start because they are more willing to burn his options and to have him go up and down than like, maybe an Alexander Wells or a Zach Lowther or one of these guys that they might view as a more legitimate major league piece in the future, whether it be in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the only thing that makes sense to me as to why Spencer Watkins would have the start over Alexander Wells, who was called up at the same time. Um, and Wells hasn't pitched yet this year, but he is hanging out in the bullpen. Um yeah, it, it's very interesting to me, but I, I think that in the end, yeah, the Orioles will, you know, probably burn these options on Spencer Watkins or somebody like him and then bring in Bradish to solidify a spot and then have probably just one spot that's still rotating a bit between the Bauman's, the Louthers, Wells's, you know, Aikens, Kramer. all of those folks. So, right. You got any other notes before we move on? No, I mean, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, the frustrating, the really frustrating thing about it is we have all these guys in our system that you just mentioned that we want to see more of. And here we are, like, using innings for Spencer Watkins, you know, so yeah, it's no arguments beyond frustrating. Well, so, Jess, lucky for you. A whole new spot in the rotation just opened up. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, unlucky for all of us, John Means is hitting the 10 day IL. Um, he was removed after the fourth inning of his game on Tuesday against the Brewers with forearm tightness. We were told for precautionary uh, reasons. Right. Everything is precautionary until they do an MRI and it shows that everything <laughs> is torn horribly, right? Um, in all seriousness, though, we 
this is a little concerning. You know, when you hear about forearm tightness, you are always a little bit concerned about that ulnar collateral ligament. I have had plenty of forearm tightness throughout my baseball career. Um, it, it is a little bit concerning. John Means says he has never felt pain in that area before, or not pain, I'm sorry, tightness. He has never felt tightness in that area before. Um, and he is somebody who's had injury concerns. We talked about, you know, Jesse has talked about maximizing Means' trade value and him needing to have a healthy first half. This definitely, whether you're looking at John Means as a potential number three starter on a good Orioles team or whether you're looking at him as trade bait this year, seeing him get hurt again sucks. He has struggled with injuries his whole career. He had two fairly good starts. And, you know, I was definitely looking forward to seeing what he was bringing this year. Um, I don't know. Not much to say, but how are you feeling? I mean, not good. And I think it's getting to a point where this is really going to severely. I mean, how can any team going to get him? you know, feel confident that he's going to be able to stay healthy, right? When it's been so many years in a row that at some point he's been injured. He was out for weeks and weeks last year, um, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely concerning. Um, and also just for him, you know, um, I mean, this is not good. And uh, I mean, I will say, like, I mean, there as you're saying, there is a reason to be worried about forearm tightness, but, you know, certainly many pitchers have forearm tightness and then are fine. And, you know, it's not a problem. Right. So, um, like, you know, it, who knows how, you know, how really bad this is going to turn out, but I think that this is just kind of a thing with him that, uh, you know, injuries, I feel like are just going to be part of what a team has to accept if they have John means on their team. And that is unfortunate. You know, he's not, he's not particularly young at this point. Right. So it just kind of feels like this is just part of how his career is going to go. And that doesn't, that's not to say like he, you know, isn't going to be able to play in the major leagues. He will, Right. There are, you know, I mean, great players who have, you know, were riddled with injuries throughout their career. Ken Griffey Jr. comes to mind in particular. Right. Um, but it definitely damages your career and, you know, it makes it harder for you. And um, and of course, in terms of his trade value, um, that that makes it tougher for the Orioles to sell him as like this is a reliable ace or at least a reliable two that you can stash there and he's going to give you 200 innings and the Orioles can't really make that case. So, yeah. Yeah. I like the, uh, the Ken Griffey jr. Comparison. If John means right. up <laughs> and swats 650 home runs, right. I think yeah. we're in a very good position right. here. Right. Uh, of course, you know, people say, <laughs> I mean, I, w I will say though, like, I mean, we joke about that, but like, we do I at least there you know I think about how even more legendary Ken Griffey Jr.'s career could have been you know had uh, had he not been injured for so much of it right so right yeah yeah well moving on um you know we have talked about the Orioles losing an arm 
now we're going to talk about them giving some away. Uh, we have some catch up to play on the Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer trade uh, to the Marlins. So just to recap it, uh, the Orioles trade Tanner Scott and Cole Sulcer to the Marlins. In return, we get Antonio Velez, a pitching prospect, Kevin Guerrero. I know less about Guerrero, so bear with me. Um, He's a center fielder. Yeah, he is an outfielder. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Kevin Guerrero, an outfielder. We get a player to be named later, and we get their competitive round B pick, uh, which comes after the second round. Yeah, for sure. So uh, a few things here. Uh, I guess I can just give a little bit of info on these guys. So Guerrero is a 17-year-old outfielder. Uh, he's already six foot three, but apparently he's only 165 pounds, according to MLB trade rumors. So definitely one of these young, toolsy, developing bodies. There is less information on him. Uh, he was part of the Dominican Summer League team for the Marlins last year, but has yet to come and break into uh, like full season ball. Uh, Velez, on the other hand, uh, he was so. In, if you guys remember the 2020 draft was only five rounds. So he wasn't drafted in 2020, but signed as a, uh, you know, amateur free agent. Um, Baseball America has said Velez has the best changeup and the best control of any pitcher in the Marlins farm system. He is currently pitching for Norfolk in the Orioles system. I'm going to double check that while Jesse speaks. No, it's Bowie. Is it Bowie? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So pitching for Bowie had a good start though. Um, so, I, you know, overall we get those two guys, one who potentially could make an impact at the major league level this year, you know, albeit a small one, he could come up for a spot start a la Spencer Watkins. <laughs> um, we get a guy who is toolsy and young, plenty of time to work with them. The Orioles clearly have a lot of confidence in their ability to develop hitters nowadays. You see us taking all hitters every single draft. So, you know, the Orioles get a like young, malleable piece that we think we have the ability to develop. We get an additional, you know, early round pick and a player to be named later, which if you guys have seen anything about Matt Brash with the Mariners this year, he was a player to be named later and is, let me check back to this, uh, the stuff plus chart here. Oh my gosh. All right, Jess, give us your thoughts. I can't find Matt Brash. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, kind of like you're saying, right. The Orioles are getting two players at very different stages in their careers. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the idea with uh, Velez is that, right, uh, I, I I actually would think that we are going to see him this year um, playing for the Orioles. Um, and I also wondered whether he um, might be a bullpen piece uh, for the Orioles this year um, at some point. Uh, I know he's historically started, but I wonder if the Orioles are going to fit him in the pen. Um, I wonder also if the Orioles kind of, um, I, I mean, to some small extent thought that he might be able to replace some of the innings that, uh, Sulcer and, uh, uh, oh my gosh, Sulcer and, uh, Scott. Scott. Yeah. Scott, sorry. Um, would be able to throw, 
Um, but of course, I mean, I think what his impact, I think that's really not uh, much of a consideration um, just because, uh, you know, they would be on pace to throw at least 120 innings combined. Um, and he is um, probably going to, you know, I mean, if he's, if things go well, less than 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, but, uh, you know, but I mean, I, you know, I'm still, uh, I still think it's a good trade for the Orioles. Um, I'm happy with it. Um, it is kind of frustrating uh, because I mean, especially with Scott, right. It feels like, you know, you're kind of selling low on him a little bit. Um, and there, you know, he of course has so much potential, uh, that the Orioles were never able to tap into, um, or find with him really. So, um, yeah, but I mean, I'm still happy with the return overall. Um, I mean, I think, um, yeah, both of these, uh, you know, players and, and the draft pick is also a really important. I mean, the draft pick is, might be the most important part of this this trade, right? Um, but yeah, overall, I'm I'm happy about it. So, yeah, agreed. There, I I think you're probably right that there's a very good chance that the that comp round pick might be the most valuable piece that we get here. Um, early round picks are, you know have a solid to high probability of turning out fairly well. And there's really no guarantee that Velez or Guerrero are ever going to play a major role at the major league level. Um, so we'll see how it goes. I, do you have any thoughts as to like whether the bullpen can absorb these blows? Obviously uh, we have the benefit of, you know, having seen this first week where the bullpen has been functioning pretty well, but do you think it's sustainable in the long term? Do you think that the Orioles are going to suffer as a result of not having these guys? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, no, I, I don't think too. I don't think too much, honestly. Right. I mean, I think the the Orioles bullpen is mainly going to be, uh, you know, the starting pitching is going to be the problem for the bullpen, right? So I think I think that's the main thing to to be worried about and the extra innings that the the bullpen is going to have to take on because of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Salser and Scott, um, you know, both being back end guys for the Orioles bullpen. Um, I mean, you know, they're one inning guys for the most part, Salser sometimes too, but um, you know, I, yeah, I'm not too worried about the, the impact and the Orioles have had, have found at least immediately Perez they found Crable so they found some some other pieces to slot in to kind of take their place more or less so um yeah yeah I I fully agree I I think that this is a situation where the Orioles were dealing from a point of depth you know we do not have much but you know the bullpen still looks it's still shaping up to be a very good one um, I think we do have multiple high leverage arms, Bautista and Bauman, like we talked about, Tate. Honestly, if Paul Fry comes back to anything like what he was in the first half of last year, that's a big win. Uh, CNL Perez has looked pretty good. He is wild as advertised, but it is what it is. Um, yeah, I, I think that the Orioles can definitely absorb that blow. Um, and I think you know, that was fully anticipated in making this move that uh, 
the Orioles were opening up some innings, you know, we're not going to be able to fit everyone into the starting rotation this year. Quite frankly, we have about 10 pitchers that really need some, need some looks at the major league level. So uh, opens up two spots in the bullpen. We'll get to use that and uh, we will see how it goes. How much of it do you think did have to do with like clearing roster space? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that was the intent, Mm -hmm. but I think it's an added benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, What I'll say is that I think, you know, like we have talked about, I think that prices for relievers usually go up around the trade deadline. And I think if the Orioles were really looking to, you know, further, further maximize this, they could have held on to them until then. That said, I think that, you know, the Orioles saw this as an opportunity with that, you know, competitive balance pick, you know, to potentially have some upside in this trade at the same time to free up some innings for the plethora of arms that need to get some work. And I I think it was like a a convenient time to do it. And, and two other quick things. One, uh, what do you think of them being packaged together rather than being traded independently? And two, what do you think of the Orioles trading so frequently with Miami? Uh, I don't mind them being packaged together. It, you know, I, I think that Scott has less value as an independent, as an independent arm, just because of the struggles he has had. Um, Solcer, on the other hand, I think is very valuable, but I'm not sure that either one of them is worth like a late second round, third round pick. So I, you know, I think that the package together might've been able to really put us over the edge in terms of acquiring what is potentially that high level talent. Um, and, you know, like, I, I think that Velez is a really, really solid depth piece. It, you know, it seems like he is, I, I mean, control plays, you know, he might not have great stuff, but the fact of the matter is that if you can keep the ball, you know, where you are trying to throw it, your catchers and, you know, the analysts will be able to develop some kind of, game plan for you to stay away from major major damage um so i could definitely you know i think he's a pretty you know relatively low ceiling but high floor prospect um and that you know that's valuable so i think that packaging them together enabled us to get this level of return um and i'm not sure that like the combination of two trades of them individually would have done that right Yeah, the thing about Velez that uh, stands out to me is, you know, the whip. Uh, It was under 0.9 in 2021. So, um, I mean, obviously, there's going to be, you know, it's minor leagues and, you know, all those caveats. But that speaks to the pitchability thing that you're talking about, being able to, um, you know, command and everything like that. So, Absolutely. Um, Okay. So, moving on couple little pieces here Orioles re-signed Matt Harvey to a minor league deal we are sending you know we've got him down in the minors stretching him out it's assumed that he will eventually make it to the bigs this year what do you think how do you feel well here's an yeah I mean here's another spot starter uh potentially um yeah I mean it's you know 
there's nothing exciting about it there's nothing uh uh it, it's it's more or less a depressing move if he ever makes the major leagues if he stays in the minors you know fine but you know we both know he's not going to and he's going to be called up eventually for a spot start or something if not more right so um yeah not 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 excited about it and it kind of reflects where the Orioles are at so I hate it um everything that came out this winter you know during the Eric K trial I think that Matt Harvey is I don't know clearly like there were some things that did not you know look favorably upon him that were said um and I'm just really not sure how much value he actually contributes to our team. I, I don't fully get it. You, you know, I think it's the Orioles um, looking for a bargain. Maybe he will turn into something, but it, you know, like we said that last year too, and he had some bright moments. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, I, I, I think it's a super, super low reward and just kind of a bummer uh, because it's a low potential reward and a bummer because of, you know, what we had seen from him and, you know, dealing drugs the day before a teammate's death. Um, you, you know, definitely, I, I, I just don't know, like, what the Orioles are doing here. I, I don't see the potential value in Matt Harvey. We've been talking about the need to be rotating pitchers into the rotation you know, if we potentially have three spots locked down for him, one locked down for Bruce Zimmerman, probably, and then one for Tyler Wells, I mean, that's the full rotation. Right. So, I, you know, like Matt Harvey needs to stay in the minor leagues for me. Um, you know, theoretically, if John means this turns into an extended absence, well, then even with the four that we just said, um, then you've only got one spot to be rotating people into. I, I, I just, I, I don't see, unless we have two like long-term injuries where there's a spot for Matt Harvey on the major league roster. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, given that, I, I don't see there's any value in bringing that publicity into your clubhouse right. and kind of bringing that attention. It's just... I don't understand he, at all. I mean, you're kind of saying he's not a good enough player to, uh, for that, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, right. Yeah. I mean, and and you're right. You know. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, this is a, this guy was our number two starter to begin the season last year, right? So, I mean, it's I guess it's an improvement. He's now in the minors, but you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, right, but. Oh, oh yeah. I was just going to say, it's, I mean, it's exactly the thing the Orioles have been doing when the Orioles signed Wade Miley, when the Orioles signed, you know, Matt Harvey. It's like they signed these, you know, guys to minor league deals, hoping uh, we did it with Felix Hernandez, right? Signing these minor league deals to these guys that are past their career, hoping that they you know, turn it around and find something, you know, and it's, that is not a reasonable solution to like a gaping hole in the starting pitching. So, well, but, but still, I mean, e even if he does find something, where do you put him? Right. 
you, you know, like if you put him in there, then you have to boot like Bruce Zimmerman or Tyler Wells, who we are trying to turn into like four or five starters. I, I really don't. Yeah. I, I yeah. I, I don't know where he fits. Right. I don't know where he fits. And if you're trying to get Bradish up, right. You, you know, like you're not going to prioritize Matt Harvey over Kyle Bradish. Right. And then Grayson at the end of the year. Right. Just... But, but these, you know, but as you said, the injuries could, you know, could turn into a problem. And I mean, you never know how. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure from their perspective, you know, he's insurance. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Agreed there. Yeah. Okay. Last note here. Uh, Dean Kramer has strained his left oblique. Um, he did it warming up in the pen, which was kind of interesting. Uh, he was coming to, going to be coming in to relieve Keegan Aiken, and they sat him back down. Uh, he has hit the 10-day IL retroactive to April 8th. Uh, you know, oblique strains are notoriously finicky. They're super unclear on timeline. They're difficult to come back from, uh, and they're very, very easy to re-aggravate. This, to me, I, I mean... I don't want to get too negative about it. I'm sure Dean Kramer will have more opportunities in the major league level, but this to me feels like a bit of a death blow to him. Uh, you know, this was his time to try to reestablish himself as a potential major league piece after what was essentially a lost year last year. Um, and this is just kind of like, I don't know, this is crushing to him. And you know, the potential for him to miss a month, other people to establish themselves in these bullpen roles, potentially even as a starter, you know, Tyler Wells to lock down a stop, spot in the rotation, Keegan Aiken, et cetera, et cetera, having chance to lock down a spot in the rotation. Um, I, I think this is a really, really tough blow to Dean Kramer. What are your thoughts, Jess? I mean, I agree. Uh, you're right that, right, like some of these guys might just jump and seize on an opportunity and right you just don't look back at a certain point right um but uh i mean one i think it'll depend on how serious the injury is how long he's actually out for right i think like the specifics on that will end up making a big deal um and right i i think it hurts his chances to start the most uh but you know if he pitches well when he returns uh you know, I, I definitely don't think I don't think starting is out of the question for him if he pitches well when he returns. Um, I, I think if he pitches well, the Orioles will find some opportunity for him, even if it's a small one, um, you know, but let alone the bullpen where I think he'll, you know, if he's pitching well, the Orioles would definitely give him a shot in the bullpen. So. Yeah, no arguments there. I th um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree yeah. that it's definitely a giant setback for him, but uh, I, I don't think, you know, all hope is lost for him at this point. Right. Yeah, no arguments there. I, I think that there's obviously still potential. I, uh, I, I think his path back to, you know, the picture that we all hold of the 2024 Orioles raising the world series trophy <laughs> uh the the path to dean kramer being in that picture and being on the parade and everything just got a little bit uh a little bit bumpier but obviously hoping for the best for him um you know he throws 96 with a little bit of natural cut i'm sure we will 
find a place for him uh as long as he comes back healthy and all agreed there yeah yeah cool uh you got any closing thoughts jess no i mean it'd be nice to beat the yankees for a few games uh that'd be really great to watch um but yeah i mean i think our uh you know yeah i don't think we're gonna be 500 this year at any point (laughs) in the season so nor do i yeah i um we're yeah. one in five and there's no coming back so yeah yeah no i think i'm with you on that yeah. um definitely would feel good to beat the yankees um this mm-hmm. may come as a shock to some people in baltimore but i really don't like the yankees no no yeah uh, us at the warehouse podcast have never really been big fans of the yankees right right so, yeah all right jess well um the one thing i will say about that though uh not that i like the yankees uh not at all but uh on opening day not the orioles home opening day but um you know every day when i come home from work uh i pass yankee stadium on the bus so i did uh they had just beaten the red sox and i was passing through uh kind of as people were exiting the stadium they beat them in extra innings and i uh you know kind of took note of it the bus kind of did a little reroute because of the traffic and stuff like that but uh yeah yeah so uh you know with me working at the bronx now i pass yankee stadium all the time now so yeah just puts your hatred for them right in your face absolutely right right, right. (laughs) yeah and that the uh you know just the outside of the stadium is just so um unlike baseball stadium like you know it's like i don't know it resembles more of a castle than a baseball stadium and it's yeah. just yeah it's it's kind it's of a museum inside it yeah and i think it, i just it, it feels ugly on the outside just uh, i don't know even what the material is maybe stone but yeah yeah so yeah all right well um <laughs> jesse's rolling his eyes yeah. <laughs> uh anyway so this has been the warehouse podcast uh i forgot to say it at the top of the episode but if you get the chance please do you know like the episode subscribe follow right. us we are on instagram and twitter at the warehouse pod people can uh, feel free to email us at the warehouse uh people can feel free to email us uh the warehouse pod at gmail.com that is also true. Yeah. If you still use email. Yes. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, uh, this has been the Warehouse Podcast. We really appreciate you guys for sticking with us all this time. Uh, Till next time, I'm Eli. I'm Jesse. And we will see you soon.